All right, so uh, my last day in Arizona and I'm spending it on the top of Mount Lemmon, which is about a 9,000 plus uh, foot high uh, peak on the east side of Tucson. And it's quite beautiful up here. Uh, my, my, my friend uh, that I'm staying with recommended uh, that I definitely needed to come because as you move up the mountain, there's all these ecosystems from the desert all the way to sort of the evergreen pine and hemlock forest at the top. And um, so, yeah, she was right. And so I, I drove very slowly up the windy roads. I'm being, you know, again, East Coaster. This is not my, my natural territory. Um, but I wanted to do my last heart intention. I put up a blog post this morning about sort of the hearts that I've left along the way. And um, my friend had actually made me um, like a, a beautiful set of lays out of uh, like Hawaiian lays. So they were, they're not enclosed, but made out of these uh, leaves called tea leaves, but it's T-I, they're Hawaiian and I guess used for a number of pur purposes, including wrapping food, um, these dark green glossy leaves. And she was able to twist them into sort of a cord. And then w along the length of the cord, there were little bits of the leaves that sort of sp uh, poked out. And it was this sort of beautiful cord. I, I, I wrote in my blog post, I said it reminded me of um, like an academic regalia, you know, you wear these honor cords or uh, liturgical vestments that there are these certain cords signifying things. And, um, you know, it had a, a feeling of um, sort of seriousness and again, deep emerald green, beautiful. And I was like, you know, I want to wear, she said, you know, I could, I could use, there were three of them and then another little smaller circlet that was from the, the remaining leaves. Um, you know, in the offerings where I went. So um, I wanted to leave a heart intention up on the top of the mountain today. And I got pretty close, but as we got towards the top, it was all like covered in clouds and blowing, blowing wind. And um, so I think I, 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 um, I didn't make it all the way to the very top, but I got very close. And actually the parking lot where I pulled off, it was like a, um, some sort of maintenance parking lot, but I walked a bit off the road, off the parking lot, and I realized there are these big transmission towers, um, and the wind was blowing through, and you know you could hardly see anything. You could only maybe see maybe 15 feet ahead of you, and but I could see the, the radio towers, and I thought, well, maybe this is where I'm supposed to leave this message of of love and natural life is under these um, man-made radio transmission towers because so so much of there's a bird up there who's who's greeting me um a lot of the signals intelligence essentially they find like the most sacred mountains and install shit on top of it so that's how it goes so i thought well maybe this is this is a, a, a rebalancing opportunity so um yeah so I, i've come back down the mountain a bit i'm still in the upper areas there's there's a lot of it's it's a mix of i guess hardwood and evergreen there's a lot of oak leaves here and sort of beautiful i don't know if you can see i, I think that these are like a geranium and that are this really pretty red color. I don't know how close you can get. See that, how beautiful that is. And I've been listening. Um, I uploaded to re-listen to uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's uh, book about moss. I can't remember the name of the moss book, but her moss book. And so I've just been enjoying. This had actually fallen off, so I didn't pick this up. But um, all the little mossy beings on the rock as I, as I walk along. And... Um, yeah, the air here is so beautiful and um, crisp, and I don't have any of that tinnitus sound. And um, 
very quiet except for the birds. And so I thought um, before, you know, I don't want to stay out too late because I'm sure the sun is going to go down and I'm in the, the shady side of the mountain. Um, but I'd like to read a little bit from we. Uh, just to sort of close out uh, this, I, I'm not going to finish the book at all, but um, just to, to uh, read a few more chapters here in the beautiful nature. Um, I guess I've sort of gone from nature in the, um, in the Hohokam ruins the, for the first episode to man, destruction, domination at the Titan Missile. And so now we're back to um, the beauty of nature. Um, yeah. Oh, and I wanted to mention too, in some of the research that I was doing, uh, many cities were engaged in sort of innovative broadband projects uh, during the lockdowns, uh, often under the name of access for low-income kids for school because they were doing online school and uh, to expand the reach, close the digital divide, so to speak. And the project in Tucson, they actually named this project Project Aeolus. And, and Aeolus is, is a Greek god, and it's the god of the four winds, which I thought was quite interesting because, I don't know, I haven't, in being in Tucson, it didn't strike me down at the, the desert level as particularly windy. Um, but up at the radar thing, definitely windy. And, you know, sort of trying to balance off um, this idea of man having this imagination that he's going to run the world like a machine, um, like the biosphere two idea and that they're going to somehow capture all of this in the simulation and then being up on this sort of near the tippy peak of this mountain and again it's not even the biggest mountains but I was a bit of a, a wuss about that but I was like a little unnerved by the power of the wind it had been a, a bit since I've been in that much wind it's a little disorienting and it's just a reminder of the power of you know God and the creative force of the universe that we're really sort of puny imagining that we can harness all of that and control all of that and model it all and predict it all as some sort of, you know, IBM weather.com component or, um, you know, it's, it's, it's both overwhelming and also heartening to be reminded, like they may aspire to be the, the gods of the four winds, but, um, I don't think it's going to happen. So, okay, so I'm gonna start, this is chapter, or they call it 11th entry. So 11th entry, and uh, the topics are, no, I cannot, I'll simply write uh, without a plan. Oh, that's interesting, okay. Evening, a light mist. The sky is hidden by a milky golden veil, and you cannot see what is above, beyond it. That's interesting. There's all these synchronicities with what I read. I mean, really, we, I was in more than a light mist up there just now. But yeah, the sky was hidden behind a very silvery veil in my case, and you couldn't see beyond. The ancients knew that God, their greatest bored skeptic, was there. We know that there is only a crystal blue, naked, indecent nothing. But now I do not know what is there. I have learned too much. Yeah, that's the problem when you learn too much. Knowledge, absolutely sure of its infallibility, is faith. I had firm faith in myself. I had believed that I knew everything within myself. And now, I stand before a mirror, and for the first time in my life, yes, for the first time, I see myself clearly, sharply, consciously. I see myself with astonishment, as a certain he. Here I am, he. Black eyebrows etched in a straight line, 
and between them like a scar a vertical fold and I have one of those <laughs> I don't remember I don't know whether it was there before steel gray eyes surrounded by the shadow of a sleepless night and there behind the steel well it turns out that I have never known what steel well what what is there and out of there well this there is at the same time here and infinitely far out of there I look at myself at him and I know he with his straight eyebrows is a stranger alien to me someone I am meeting for the first time in my life and I the real I am not he no period all this is nonsense and all these absurd sensations are but delirium the result of yesterday's poisoning poisoning by what a sip of the green venom or by her it does not matter I am writing all of this down merely to show how strangely human reason so sharp and so precise can be confused and thrown into disarray reason that had succeeded in making even infinity of which the ancients were so frightened acceptable to them by means of the enunciator clicks it is r13 let him come in fact I am glad it is too difficult for me to be alone now. 20 minutes later. On the plain surface of the paper in the two-dimensional world, these lines are next to one another. But in a different world, they... Well, I'm losing my sense of figures. 20 minutes may be 200 or 200,000. And it seems so strange to write down in calm, measured, carefully chosen words what has occurred just now between me and R. It is like sitting down in an armchair by your own bedside, legs crossed and watching curiously how you yourself are writhing in the bed. When R13 entered, I was perfectly calm and normal, and I spoke with sincere admiration of how splendidly he had succeeded in versifying the sentence and told him that his trochees had been the most effective instrument of all in crushing and destroying the madman. I would even say if I were asked to drop a schematic blueprint of the benefactor's machine, I would somehow, well, somehow find a way of incorporating your verses into the drawing, I concluded. But suddenly I noticed R's eyes turn lusterless, his lips turned gray. What is it? What? What? Oh, oh, I'm simply tired of it. Everyone around talks of nothing but the sentence. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I just don't want to. He frowned and rubbed the back of his head, that little box of his, with its strange baggage that I did not understand. A pause. And then he found something in the box and pulled it out and opened it up. His eyes glossed over with laughter as he jumped up. But for your integral, I am composing. That will be, oh yes, that will be something. It was again the old R. Spluttering lips, spring saliva, fountain of words you see s a spray that ancient legend about paradise why it's about us about today yes just think uh two in paradise were given a choice happiness without freedom or freedom without happiness there was no third alternative and those idiots chose freedom and what came of it of course for ages afterwards they longed for the chains you know the change you understand that's what world sorrow was about for ages and only we have found the way of restoring happiness no, wait, listen further. The ancient God and we, side by side at the same table. Yes, we have helped God ultimately to conquer the devil, for it was he who attempted men to break the ban and get a taste of ruinous freedom, the evil serpent. 
and we, well, we've brought down our boot over his little head and crunch, and now everything is fine and we have paradise again. Again, we are as innocent and simple-hearted as Adam and Eve. No more of that confusion about good and evil. Everything is simply heavenly, childishly simple. The benefactor, the machine, the cube, the glass, gas bell, the guardians. All this is good. All this is sublime, magnificent, noble, elevated, crystally pure. Because it protects our unfreedom, that is our happiness. The ancients would begin to talk and think and break their heads, ethical, unethical. Well then, in short, what about such a paradisic poem, eh? And of course, the, in the most serious tone. You understand quite something, eh? Understand? It was simple enough. I mean, I remember thinking such an absurd, asymmetrical face, yet such a clear, correct mind. And that is why he is so close to me, the real me. I still consider my old self the true one. All of this today is, of course, only a sickness. R evidently read these thoughts on my face, and he put his arm around my shoulders and roared with laughter. Ah, you, Adam. Yes, incidentally about Eve. And he fumbled in his pocket, took out a notebook, and turned the pages. The day after tomorrow. No, in two days. O has a pink coupon to visit you. How do you feel about it? As before, do you want her to? Well, of course, naturally. I'll tell her so. She, well, she is a little shy herself, you see. What a business with me. It is nothing, you know, merely a pink coupon, but with you. And she would not tell me who the fourth one is that broke into our triangle. Confess it now. You rep reprobate. Who was it? Well, a curtain flew up inside me, a rustle of silk, a green bottle, lips, and inappropriately to no purpose, the words broke out. If I had only restrained myself. Tell me, have you ever tasted alcohol Nicot or nicotine? R compressed his lips and threw me a sidelong look. I heard his thoughts with utmost clarity. You may be a friend, all right, still. And then his answer, well, how shall I put it? Actually, no, but I knew a certain woman. I-330, I shouted. So you, you too, with her? He filled with laughter, gulped, ready to spill over. My mirror hung on the wall in such a way that I could see myself only across the table from here. From the chair, I only saw my forehead and my eyebrows. And now I, the real I, saw in the mirror the twisted jumping line of the eyebrows and the real, well, I heard a wild, revolting shout. What to? What do you mean, to? Now I demand an answer. Gaping lips. Well, then I, the real I, sees the other, the wild, shaggy, panting one by the scruff of the neck. The real I said to R, forgive me, I, for the benefactor's sake, I'm quite ill. I cannot sleep. I do not know what is happening to me. A fleeting smile. Yes, yes, I understand. It is all familiar to me. Theoretically, of course. Goodbye. <laughs> and in the doorway, he turned, bounced back towards me like a small black ball, and threw a book down on the table. My latest. I brought it for you. Almost forgot it. Goodbye. Uh, he sprayed at me, and he rolled out of the room. I am alone. Or rather, alone with that other eye. I am sitting in the chair, legs crossed, watching with curiosity for some there, how I, myself, writhe in the bed. Why? Why is it that for three whole years O and I and R have had a fine, warm friendship, and now a single word about the other one, about I-330? Is it possible that all this madness, love, jealousy exists, not only in these idiotic ancient books? And to think that I, equations, formulas, figures, and this, I don't understand anything, anything at all. Tomorrow I shall go to R and tell him that. No, it isn't true.
I will not go, neither tomorrow nor the day after tomorrow. I shall never go. I cannot. I don't want to see him. It is the end. Our triangle is broken. And I am alone. Evening, a light mist. The sky is hidden behind a milky veil. If only I could know what is there above it. If only I could know who I am and what I am like. Twelfth entry. The Limitation of Infinity, an Angel, Reflections on Poetry. I have the constant feeling I will recover. I can recover. I slept very well. None of those dreams or other morbid symptoms. Tomorrow, dear, oh, will come to me and everything will be simple, right, and limited as a circle. I do not fear this word, limitation. The function of man's highest faculty, his reason, consists precisely of the continuous limitation of infinity. The breaking up of infinity into convenient, easily digestible portions, differentials. This is precisely what lends my field, mathematics, its divine beauty. And it is understanding of this beauty that the other one, I-330, lacks. However, this is merely in passing, a chance association. All of these thoughts in time to the measured, regular clicking of the wheels of the underground train, I silently scanned the rhythm of the wheels and R's poems from the book he had given me yesterday. And then I became aware of someone cautiously bending over my shoulder from behind and peering at the open page. Without turning, in the merest corner of my eye, I saw the pink, wide wing ears, the double bent. It was he. Reluctant to disturb him, I pretended not to notice. I cannot imagine how he got there. He did not seem to be in the car when I entered. This incident, trivial in itself, had a particularly pleasant effect on me. It strengthened me. How good it is to know that a vigilant eye is fixed on you, lovingly protecting you against the slightest error, the slightest misstep. This may seem somewhat sentimental, but an analogy comes to mind, the guardian angels that the ancients dreamed of. How many of the things they merely dreamed about have been realized in our own life? And at the moment when I felt the guardian angel behind my back, I was enjoying a sonnet entitled Happiness. I think I will not be mistaken if I say that it is a poem of rare and profound beauty of thought. Here are the first four lines. Eternally enamored, two times two. Eternally united in the passionate four. Most ardent lovers in the world. Inseparable, two times two. And so on, the wise eternal bliss of the multiplication table. Every true poet is inevitably a Columbus. America existed for centuries before Columbus, but only Columbus succeeded in discovering it. The multiplication table existed for centuries before R13, and yet it was only R13 who found a new El Dorado in the virginal forest of figures. And indeed, is there any happiness wiser, more unclouded than the happiness of this miraculous world? Steel rusts. The ancient god created the old man capable of erring, hence he erred himself. The multiplication, um, able, the multiplication able is wiser and more absolute than the ancient god. It is never. Do you realize the full meaning of the word? It never errs. And there are no happier figures than those which live according to the harmonious eternal laws of the multiplication table. No hesitations, no delusions. There is only one truth and only one true way. And this truth is two times two and the true way four. And would it not be an absurdity if these happily, ideally multiplied twos began to think of some nonsensical freedom? Clearly to error. I mean, to me, it is axiomatic that R13 succeeded in grasping the most fundamental, the most 
And at this point, I felt once more firm at the back of my head and then at my left ear, the warm, delicate breath of my guardian angel. He had obviously noticed that the book on my lap was now closed and my thoughts far away. Well, I was ready, there and then, to open all the pages of my mind to him. There was such serenity, such joy in this feeling, I remember. I turned and looked into his eyes with pleading insistence, but he did not understand, or did not wish to understand, and asked me nothing. Only one thing remains to me, to speak to you and my unknown readers about everything. At this moment, you are as dear and near and unattainable to me as he was then. My reflections proceeded from the part to the whole. The part R13, the majestic whole, our institute of state poets and writers. And I wondered at the ancients who had never realized the utter absurdity of their literature and poetry. The enormous, magnificent power of the literary word was completely wasted. It's simply ridiculous. Everyone wrote anything he pleased and just as ridiculous and absurd as the fact that the ancients allowed the ocean to beat dully at the shore 24 hours a day, while the millions of kilogrammometers of energy residing in the waves only went only to heighten lovers' feelings. But we have extracted electricity from the amorous whisper of the waves, and we have transformed the savage, foam-spitting beast into a domestic animal, and in the same way we have tamed and harnessed the once wild element of poetry. Today poetry is no longer the idle, impudent whistling of a nightingale. Poetry is a civic service. Poetry is useful. Take, for example, our famous mathematical couplets. Could we have learned in school to love the four rules of arithmetic so tenderly and so sincerely without them? Or thorns, that classical image, the guardians as the thorns on the rose, protecting the delicate flower of the state from the rude contacts. Whose heart can be so stony as to remain unmoved, as the sight of innocent childish lips recite a prayer, like a prayer, the verse. The bad boy rudely sniffed the rose, but the th steely thorn pricked his nose. The mischief maker cries, oh, oh, and runs as fast as he can go, and so on. Or does the daily odes to the benefactor who upon reading them will not bow piously before the selfless labors of the number of numbers? Or the awesome red flowers of court sentences? Or the immortal tragedy, he who was late to work? Or the guidebook stanzas on sexual hygiene? All of our life in its entire complexity and beauty has been engraved forever in the gold of words. Our poets no longer soar in the Empyrean. They have come down to earth. They stride beside us to the stern mechanical march of the music plant. Their lyre encompasses the morning scraping of electric toothbrushes and the dread cackle of the sparks of the benefactor's machine, the majestic echoes of the hymn to the one state and the intimate tinkle of the gleaming crystal chamber pot, the exciting rustle of dropping shades, the merry voices of the latest cookbook and the scarcely, scarcely audible whisper of the listening membranes in the streets. Our gods are here, below, with us, in the office, the kitchen, the workshop, the toilet. The gods have become like us. Ergo, we have become as gods. And we shall come to you, my unknown readers, on the distant planet to make your life as divinely rational and precise as ours. Thirteenth entry. Fog. Thou. An utterly absurd incident. I woke at dawn. The solid rosy firmament greeted my eyes and everything was beautifully round. In the evening, oh, would be here, I felt. I am completely well. I smiled and fell asleep again. The morning bell. I rose. But now all was different around me. 
through the glass of the ceiling, the wall everywhere dense, penetrating fog. Crazy clouds, now heavier, now lighter. There was no longer any boundaries between the sky and earth. Everything was flying, melting, falling. Nothing to get hold of, no more houses. The glass walls were dissolved in the fog like salt crystals in water. From the street, the dark figures inside the houses were like particles suspended in a milky nightmare solution. Some hanging low, some higher, and still higher all the way to the 10th floor. And everything was swirling smoke as in silent, raging fire. Exactly 11.45, I glanced deliberately at the watch to grasp the figures, at the solid safety of the figures. At 11.45, before going to perform the usual physical labor prescribed by the table of hours, I stopped off for a moment in my room, and suddenly the telephone rang. The voice along, slow needle, plunged into the heart. Ah, you are still home. I am glad. Wait for me on the corner. We shall go. You will see where. You know very well that you will do as I tell, or you know very well that I'm going to work now. Well, you know very well that you will do as I tell you. Goodbye. Two minutes. Two minutes later, I stood on the corner. After all, I had to prove to her that I was governed by the one state and not by her. You will do as I tell you. And so sure of herself, I could hear it in her voice. Well, now I shall have a proper talk with her. Gray eunuchs, woven of the raw, damp fog, hurriedly came into being at my side and instantly dissolved in the fog. I stared at my watch, all of me a sharp, quivering second hand. Eight minutes, ten, three minutes to twelve, two minutes. Finished. Okay, I was already late for work. I hated her, but I had to prove to her. And at the corner, through the white fog, blood, a slit, as with sharp knife, her lips. I am afraid I delayed you. But then, it is all the same. It is too late for you now. How I... But she was right. It was too late. I silently stared at her lips. All women are lips, nothing but lips. Some pink, firmly round, a ring, a tender protection against the whole world. But these, a second ago, they did not exist, and now a knife slit, and the sweet blood will drip down. She moved nearer, leaning on her shoulder against me, and we were one, and something flowed from her into me, and I knew that this is how it must be. I knew it with every nerve and every hair and every heartbeat, so sweet it verged on pain. And what joy to submit to this must. A piece of iron must feel such a joy as it submits to the precise, inevitable law that draws it to a magnet. Or a stone thrown up, hesitating a moment, and then plunging headlong back to the earth. Or a man, after the final agony, taking a last deep breath and dying. I remember, I smiled dazedly and said for no good reason, Fog. So very... Do you like fog? She used the ancient, long-forgotten thou (laughs) of the master to the slave. It entered into me slowly. Yes, I was a slave, and this too was necessary and good. Yes, I said aloud to myself and then to her. "I, I hate fog. I'm afraid of it. Oh, that means you love it. You are afraid of it because it is stronger than you, and you hate it because you are afraid of it. You love it because you cannot subdue it to your will. Only the unsubduable can be loved. Yes, this is true, and this is precisely why, precisely why I, and we walked, the two of us, one, somewhere, far through the fog, the sun sang almost inaudibly, everything was filling up with firmness, with pearl, gold, rose, red, the entire world was a single, unencompassable woman, and we were in its very womb, unborn, ripening joyfully, and it was clear to me, in in elecule, in in ineluctably clear, ineluctably clear, sorry, that the sun, the fog, the rose, and the gold were all for me. 
I did not ask where we were going. It did not matter. The only thing that mattered was to walk, to walk, to ripen, to fill up more and more firmly. Here, I-330 stopped at a door. This is the one I spoke to you about at the ancient house on duty here yesterday. I, uh, sorry, the one I spoke to you about at the ancient house is on duty here today. And from far away, with my eyes only protecting what was ripening within me, I read the sign, Medical Office, and I understood. A glass room filled with golden fog, glass ceilings, colored bottles, jars, wires, bluish sparks and tubes, and a tiny man, the thinnest I have ever seen, all of him seemed to cut out of paper, and no matter which way he stood, there was nothing but a profile sharply honed, the nose, a sharp blade, lips like scissors. I did not hear what I-330 said to him. I watched her speak, and I felt myself smiling blissfully, uncontrollably, and the scissor lips flashed, and the doctor said, yes, yes, I understand. The most dangerous disease, I know, of nothing more dangerous. And he laughed quickly and wrote something with the thinnest of paper hands and gave the slip to I-330, and then he wrote another one and gave it to me. He had given us certificates that we were ill and could not report to work. I was stealing my services from the one state. I was his thief. I saw myself under the benefactor's machine, but all of this was as remote and indifferent as a story in a book. I took the slip without a moment's hesitation. I, all of me, my eyes, lips, hands, knew that this had to be. At the corner, at the almost empty garage, we took an arrow. I-330 sat at the controls as she had the first time, and we switched the starter to forward, and we broke from the earth and floated away, and everything followed us, the rosy golden fog, the sun, the finest blade of the doctor's profile, suddenly so dear, and formerly everything had turned around the sun, and now I knew everything was turning around me, slowly, blissfully, with tightly closed eyes." The old woman at the gates of the ancient house, the dear mouth grown together with its ray of wrinkles. It must have been closed all these days, but now it opened and smiled. Ah, you mischievous imp, instead of working like everyone else, oh well, go on in, go in. If anything goes wrong, I'll come in and warn you. The heavy creaking untransparent door closed, and at once my heart opened painfully wide, still wider all the way. Her lips were mine. I drank and drank. I broke away, stared silently into her eyes, wide open to me, and again. And the twilight of the rooms, the blue, the saffron yellow, the dark green leather, Buddha's golden smile, the glimmering mirrors in my old dreams so easy to understand. Now everything filled with golden pink sap, ready to overflow, to spurt. And it ripened. And inevitably, as iron and the magnet in sweet submission to the exact immutable law, I poured myself into her. There was no pink coupon, no accounting, no state, not even myself. There was only the tenderly sharp clenched teeth, the golden eyes wide upon me, and through them I entered slowly, deeper and deeper, and silence, only in a corner, thousands of miles away, drops falling in the washstand, and I was the universe, and from one drop to the other, eons, millennia. Slipping on my unif, I bent down to I-330, and I drank her in with my eyes for the last time. I knew it. I knew you, she said, just audibly. And rising quickly, she put on her unif and her usual sharp bite smile. Well, fallen angel, you're lost now. You're not afraid? Goodbye, then. You will return alone. There. And she opened the mirror, mirror door of the wardrobe and looked at me over her shoulder and she waited and I went out obediently. But I had barely stepped across the threshold when suddenly I felt that I must feel her press against me with her shoulder only one more second, only with her shoulder and nothing more. 
and I rushed back into the room where she was probably still fastening her unif before the mirror, and I ran in and stopped. I clearly saw the ancient key ring still swaying in the door of the wardrobe, but I-330 was not there. She could not have left. There was only one exit, and yet she was not there, and I searched everywhere. I even opened the wardrobe, and I felt the bright ancient dresses. No one. I feel embarrassed somehow, my planetary readers, to tell you about this altogether improbable occurrence. But what can I say if this was exactly how it happened? Wasn't the whole day from the earliest morning full of improbabilities? Isn't it all so like the ancient sickness of dreams? And if so, what difference does it make if there is one more absurdity, more or less? Besides, I am certain that sooner or later I shall succeed in fitting all of these absurdities into some logical formula. This reassures me, and I hope it will reassure you. But how full I am, if only you could know how full I am, full to the very brim. Before we head back, I just want to let you take in the view with me in the distance. That's the top of Mount Lemmon over there, I think, where the clouds were. And you can see out. This is, we're looking east. So this is Tucson is on the west side. And it just goes on and on. And the Dragoon Mountains are over there somewhere. You can see the shadows of the clouds on the desert and how beautiful it is. And there's so many telescopes here looking and looking and looking. I'm not sure that they see. I think what they're looking for is the math. They're looking for the math, but the math will never fill people to the brim. And there's my little rocks where I was sitting. Just beautiful, beautiful day. All right, so it's getting a little cold and dark on the other side of the mountain. So I've come a bit further down, about maybe eight miles further down. And I, now I'm on, we're on the west side so at least i have a little bit more daylight behind me and it is a very different ecosystem um a lot of these sort of little crumbly rocks and still piney but open more of an open canopy and there's a uh, i don't know if you can see there's a, a little fire pit next to me and actually i just i just pulled off this is an official trail i'm not really all that far from the car but um when I pulled off, I was like, well, maybe this would work. And um, as soon as I pulled over in the pullover spot, I noticed up on the hill, and I'll show it to you on the way out, that someone actually has used these uh, rocks um, to make a giant heart. It's a little lopsided, but it's definitely a heart, I think. So um, it seems like, yeah, maybe I was supposed to come here and do our finish the reading for today. Uh, so I'm just gonna pick back up. This is uh, the 14th entry, and this is called Mine impossible the cold floor more about the other day my personal hour before bedtime was occupied and i could not record it yesterday but all of it is etched in me and most of all perhaps forever that intolerably cold floor in the evening O was to come to me this was her day and i went down to the number on duty to obtain permission to lower my shades what is wrong with you the man on duty asked me you seem to be sort of i'm i'm not well well, as a matter of fact, it was true. I'm certainly sick, and all of this is an illness. And then I remembered, yes, of course, the doctor's note. I felt for it in my pocket, and it rustled there, and then everything that had really happened, it had been real. 
I held out the slip of paper to the man on duty. My cheeks burned. Without looking, I saw him glance up at me, surprised. And then it was 21 and a half. In the room at the left, the shades were down, and in the room at the right, I saw my neighbor over a book, his knobby brow and bald head, a huge yellow parabola. parabola. Tormentedly, I paced my room. How could I now with O after all that had happened? And from the night, I sensed distinctly the man's eyes upon me, or from the right, I sensed distinctly the man's eyes upon me, and I saw distinctly the wrinkles in his forehead, a row of yellow, illegible lines, and for some reason it seemed to me those lines were about me. At a quarter to 22, a joyous, rosy hurricane burst into my room. A strong circle of rosy arms closed about my neck. And then I felt the circle weakening, weakening. It broke. The arms dropped. You're not the same. You're not the old one, not mine. What sort of primitive notion, mine? I never was. And I broke off. And it came to me. It's true. Before this, I never was. But now, well... Now I no longer live in our clear rational world. I live in the ancient nightmare world, the world of square roots of minus one. The shades fell, and behind the wall on my right, my neighbor dropped his book on the floor, and in the last momentary narrow slit between the shade and the floor, I saw the yellow hand picking up a book, and my one wish was to grasp at that hand with all my strength. I thought, I hope to meet you during the walk today. I have so much, there is so much I must tell you. Sweet poor O, her rosy mouth, a rosy crescent, its horns down. <laughs> but how can I tell her what happened? I cannot, if only because that would make her an accomplice to my crimes. I knew she would have enough, not have enough strength to go to the office of the guardians, and hence she laid black. I kissed her slowly. I kissed that plump, naive fold on her wrist. Her blue eyes were closed, and the rosy crescent slowly opened, bloomed, and I kissed all of her. And then I felt how empty, how drained I was. I had given everything away. I cannot, must not, and I must, and it's impossible. And my lips grew cold at once. And the rosy half-moon trembled, wilted, and twisted, and O drew the blanket over herself, wrapped herself in it, and hid her face in the pillow. I sat on the floor near the bed. What an incredibly cold floor. And I sat silently. The agonizing cold rose from beneath, higher and higher. It must be cold like this in the blue, silent, interplanetary space. But you must understand, I did not want to, I muttered. I did all I could. And this was true. I, the real I, had not wanted to. And yet, how could I tell her this? How explain that the iron may not want to, but the law is in... in <laughs> electable, exact. O raised her face from the pillow and said without opening her eyes, go away. But she was crying and the words came out, go away. And for some reason, this silly trifle cut deeply into me. Chilled, numbed all through, I went out on the corridor and outside behind the glass, a light, barely visible mist. By nightfall, the fog would probably be dense again. What would happen to me that night? O silently slipped past me toward the elevator. The door clicked. One moment, I cried, suddenly frightened, but the elevator was already humming down, down, down. She had robbed me of R. She had robbed me of O. And yet, and yet. 15th entry. The bell, the mirror smooth sea. I am to burn eternally. I had just stepped into the dock where the integral is being built when the second builder hurried to meet me. His face, round, white as usual, a china plate, and his words, like something exquisitely tasty served up on a plate. Well, while it pleased you to be sick another day, we had, well, I'd say, quite a bit of excitement in the chief's absence. Excitement? 
Oh, yes. The bell rang at the end of the workday, and everybody began to file out. And imagine the doorman caught a man without a number. I'll never understand how he managed to get in. He was taken to the operational section. They'll know how to drag the why and how out of the fellow. All of this with the tastiest smile. The operational section is staffed with our best and most experienced physicians who work under the direct supervision of the benefactor himself. They have a variety of instruments, the most effective of which is the famous gas bell. Essentially, it is the old school laboratory experiment. A mouse is placed under a glass jar and an air pump gradually rarefies the air inside of it. And so on. <laughs> but of course, the gas bell is a much more perfect apparatus using all sorts of gases. And then this is no longer torture of a tiny helpless animal. It serves a noble end. It safeguards the security of the one state. In other words, the happiness of millions. About five centuries ago, when the operational section was first being developed, there were some fools who compared the section to the ancient Inquisition. But that is as absurd as equating a surgeon performing a tracheotomy with a highwayman. Both may have the same knife in their hands, and both do the same thing, cut a living man's throat. Yet one is a benefactor and the other a criminal. One has a plus sign and the other a minus. All of this is entirely clear within a single second, at a single turn of the logical machine, and then suddenly the gears catch on the minus, and something altogether different comes to ascendancy. The key ring still swaying in the door. The door had evidently just been shut, and yet I-330 was already gone, vanished. That was something the machine could not digest in any way. A dream? But even now I feel that strange sweet pain in my right shoulder, I-330 pressing herself against the shoulder next to me in the fog. Do you like fog? Yes. Yes, I love the fog. I love everything. And everything is firm, new, astonishing, and everything is good. Everything is good, I said aloud. Good? The china eyes goggled me. What is good about this? If that unnumbered one had managed, I mean, it means they are everywhere, all around us, at all times. They are here, around the integral. They, well, who are they? Well, how would I know? But I feel them, you understand, all the time. And have you heard about the newly invented operation excision of the imagination? I myself heard something of the kind a few days earlier. Well, I know about it, but what does that to do with... Well, just this. I mean, in your place, I would go and ask to be operated on. Something distinctly lemon sour appeared on the plate. The good fellow was offended by the hint that he might possibly possess imagination. Oh, well. Only a week ago, I would have been offended myself, but not today. Today, I know that I have it myself, uh, that I am ill, and I also know that I don't want to be cured. I don't, and that's all there is to it. We ascended the glass stairs. Everything below was clearly as visible as if it were spread out on the palm of my hand. You who read these notes, whoever you may be, you have a sun over your heads, and if you have ever been as ill as I am now, you know what the sun is like what it can be like in the morning. You know, that pink, transparent, warm gold when the very air is faintly rosy and everything is suffused with the delicate blood of the sun. Everything is alive. The stones are alive and soft and iron is alive and soft and people are alive and everyone is smiling. In an hour, all this may vanish. In an hour, the rosy blood may trickle out. But for the moment, everything lives and I see something pulsing and flowing in the glass veins of the integral. I see the integral is pounding, pondering its great portentous future, the heavy load of unavoidable happiness it will carry upward to you, unknown ones. 
You who are forever searching and never finding, you shall find what you seek. You shall be happy. It is your duty to be happy. You do not have much longer to wait. The body of the integral is almost ready. A graceful, elongated ellipsoid made of our glass, as eternal as gold, as flexible as steel. I saw the transverse ribs and the longitudinal stringers being attached to the body from within. In the stern, they were installing the base for the giant rocket motor. Every three seconds a blast, every three seconds the mighty tail of the integral will eject flame and gases into cosmic space, and the fiery tamerlane of happiness will soar away and away. I watched the men below move in regular rapid rhythm according to the Taylor system, bending, unbending, turning like the levers of a single huge machine. Tubes glittered in their hands with fire. They sliced and welded the glass walls, angles, ribs, brackets. I saw transparent glass monster cranes rolling slowly along the glass rails, turning and bending as obediently as the men, delivering their loads into the bowels of the integral. And all of this was one, humanized machines, perfect men. It was the highest, the most stirring beauty, harmony, music. Quick, below, to join them, to be with them. And now, shoulder to shoulder, welded together with them, caught up in the steel rhythm, measured movements, firmly round, firmly round, ready cheeks, mirror smooth brows, untroubled by the madness of thought. I floated on the mirror smooth sea. I rested. <coughs> Suddenly, one of them turned to me serenely. Better today? Better? What's better? Well, you were out yesterday. We thought it might be something dangerous. A bright forehead, a childlike, innocent smile. The blood rushed to my face. I could not, could not lie to those eyes. I was silent, drowning. The gleaming white china face bent down through the hatch above. Hey, D-503, come on up, please. We're getting the rigid frame here with the brackets and the stress. Without listening to the end, I rushed up to him. I was escaping ignominiously in headlong flight. I could not raise my eyes. The glittering glass stairs flashed under my feet, and every step increased my hopelessness. I had no place here. I, the criminal, the poisoned one, never again would I merge into the regular, precise, mechanical rhythm, never again float on the mirror-like, untroubled sea. I was doomed to burn forever, to toss about, to seek a corner where to hide my eyes forever until I finally found the strength to enter that door, Anne. And then an icy spark shot through me. I, well, it didn't matter, but I would also have to tell you about her, and she too would be. And I climbed out of the hatch and stopped on the deck. I did not know where to turn now. I did not know why I had to come there. I looked up. The mid midday weary sun was rising dully, and below me was the integral, glassy, gray, unalive. The rosy blood had trickled out. It was clear to me that all of this was merely my imagination, that everything remained as it had been before. Yet it was also clear. What's wrong with you, 503? Are you deaf? I have been calling and calling. What's the matter? The second builder shouted into my ear. He must have been shouting for a long time. What's the matter with me? I must have lost the rudder. The motor roars. The arrow quivers and rushes at full speed, but there is no rudder, no controls, and I don't know where I'm flying, down to crash into the ground in a moment or up into the sun in flames. 16th entry. Yellow. Two-dimensional shadow. Incurable soul. I have not written anything for several days. I don't know how many. All the days are one day. All the days are one color. 
yellow, like parched fiery sand, and there is not a spot of shadow, not a drop of water, on and on endlessly over the yellow sand. I cannot live without her. Yet since she vanished so incomprehensively that day in the ancient house, she... I've seen her only twice since that day during the daily walk, two, three, four days ago. I, I don't know. All the days are one. And she flashed by, filling for a second the yellow, empty world. And hand in hand with her, up to her shoulder, and the double bent S and the paper-thin doctor. And there was a fourth one, I remember, nothing but his fingers, that they would fly out of the sleeves of his unif like clusters of rays, incredibly thin, white, long. I-330 raised her hand and waved to me, and over her neighbor's head she bent down towards the one with the ray-like fingers. I caught the word integral. All four glanced back at me, and then they were lost in the gray-blue sky, and again and again the yellow desiccated road. That evening she had a pink coupon to visit me. I stood before the annunciator and implored it with tenderness with hatred to click to register in the white slot I-330 and the door slammed. A pale, tall, rosy, swarthy numbers came out of the elevator. Shades were pulled down on all sides. She was not there. She did not come. And possibly just at this very moment, exactly at 22 as I'm writing this, she stands with closed eyes leaning against someone with her shoulder saying to someone, do you love? To whom? Who is he? The one with the ray-like fingers or the, or the spluttering R, or the S. S, why am I constantly hearing his flat steps all these days splashing as through puddles? Why is he following me all these days like a shadow? Before me, behind, beside me, behind, a gray-blue two-dimensional shadow. Others pass through it, step on it, but it is invariably there, bound to me as by some invisible umbilical cord. Perhaps this cord is she, I-330. I don't know. Or perhaps they, the guardians, already know that I... Well, suppose you were told your, your shadow sees you, sees you all the time. Do you understand me? And then suddenly you have the strangest feeling that your hands are not your own, that they interfere with you. And I catch myself constantly swinging my arms absurdly out of time with my steps, or suddenly I feel that I must glance back, but it's impossible. I mean, no matter how hard I try, my neck is rigid and locked. And I run, and I run faster and faster, and I feel with my back, my shadow runs faster behind me, and there is no escape, no escape anywhere alone at last in my room, but here there was something else, the telephone, and I pick up the receiver. Yes, I-330, please. And again, I hear a rustle in the receiver. Someone steps in the hall, past her room, in silence. I throw down the receiver. I can't. I can't endure it any longer. I must run there to her. This happened yesterday. I hurried there and wandered for an hour from 16 to 17 near the house where she lives. Numbers marched past me, row after row. Thousands of feet stepped rhythmically. A million-footed monster floated, swaying by, and only I was alone, cast by a storm upon a desert island, seeking, seeking with my eyes among the gray-blue waves. A moment, and I shall see the sharply mocking angle of the eyebrows lifted to the temples and the dark windows of the eyes, and there within them the burning fireplace, the stirring shadows, and I will step inside indirectly, directly, and I will say, you know, I cannot live without you. Why then? And I will use the warm, familiar thou, only thou. But she is silent. Suddenly I hear the silence, I do not hear the music plant, and I realize it is past 17 and everyone else is gone, and I am alone. And I'm late. Around me, a glass desert flooded by the yellow sun, and in the smooth glass of the pavement, as in water, 
I see the gleaming walls suspended upside down and myself hung mockingly head down, feet up. I must hurry this very second to the medical office to get a certificate of illness. Otherwise, they'll take me in. But well, perhaps that will be best. I mean, to stay here and calmly wait until they see me and take me to the operational section and so put an end to everything and atone for everything at once. A faint rustle and a doubly bent shadow before me. Without looking, I felt two steel-gray gimlets drill into me, and with a last effort, I smiled and said, I had, had to say something. I, I must go to the medical office. What's the problem, then? Why do you stand here? Absurdly upside down, hung by the feet, I was still silent, burning with shame. Come with me, S said harshly, and I followed, obediently swinging my unnecessary alien arms. It was impossible to raise my eyes, and I walked all the way through a crazy upside-down world. Some strange machines, their bases up, people glued antipodally to the ceiling, and lower still beneath it all the sky locked into the thick glass of the pavement. And I remembered what I resented most of all was that for this last time in my life I was seeing everything in this absurdly upside-down unreal state, but it was impossible to raise my eyes. We stopped. A staircase rose before me in another step, and I would see the figures in white medical smocks, the huge, mute bell. And with an enormous effort, I finally tore my eyes away from the glass underfoot, and suddenly the golden letters of medical office burst into my face. At that moment, it had not even occurred to me to wonder why he had spared me or why he had brought me here instead of to operational section. At a single bound, I swung across the steps. I slammed the door firmly behind me and took a deep breath. I felt I had not breathed since morning. My heart had not been beating, and it was only now that I had taken my first breath, only now that the sluices in my breast had opened. And there were two of them, one short with tubby legs, weighing the patients with eyes as though lifting them on horns, and the other paper thin with gleaming scissor lips, his nose the finest blade, the same one. And I rushed to him as to someone near and dear, Mumbling about insomnia, dreams, shadows, a yellow world, the scissor lips gleamed and smiled. Oh, you're in a bad way. Apparently you have developed a soul. A soul? That strange, ancient, long-forgotten word? We, we sometimes use the word soul-stirring, but soulless, but soul? It is very dangerous. Is it very dangerous, I muttered. Incurable, scissor snapped. But, but what essentially does it mean? I mean, somehow I don't, I don't understand it. Well, you see, how can I explain it to you? You're a mathematician, aren't you? Well, yes. Well then, take a plane, P-L-A-N-E, a surface, this mirror, say, and then on this surface are you and I, you see, and then we squint against the sun and hear the blue electric spark inside that tube and there the passing shadow of an arrow and all of it on the surface only momentary. But imagine this impermeable substance, uh, it any more... Um, so, but imagine this impermeable substance softened by some fire and nothing slides across it anymore. Everything enters into it, into this mirror world that we examined with such curiosity when we were children. Children are not so foolish, I assure you. The plane had acquired volume and it has become a body, a world, and everything is now inside the mirror, inside you. The sun, the blast of the whirling propeller, your trembling lips, someone else's. Do you understand? The cold mirror reflects, throws back, but this one absorbs and everything leaves its trace forever. A moment, a faint line on someone's face and it remains in you forever. Once you hear a drop fall in the silence and you hear it now. Yes, yes, exactly. I seized his hand, I heard it. Now drops falling slowly from the washstand faucet. And I knew, 
this was forever. But why? Why suddenly a soul? I mean, I've never had one, and suddenly, I mean, why? No one else has it, and I, and I clung even more violently to the thin hand, and I was terrified of losing the lifeline. Why? Why don't you have feathers or wings and only shoulder blades, the base for wings? Because wings are no longer necessary. We have the arrow. Wings would only interfere. Wings are for flying, and we have nowhere else to fly. We have arrived. We have found what we have been searching for. Isn't that so? And I nodded in confusion, and he looked at me with a scalpel-sharp laugh. And the other heard it, uh, pattered, 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 pattered in from his office in his tubby, on his tubby feet, lifted my paper-thin doctor, lifted me on his horn eyes. What's the trouble? A soul? A soul, you say? What the devil? Well, we'll soon return to collar if you go on that way. I told you, raising the paper thin one on his horns, I told you we must cut out imagination in everyone. Extirpate imagination. Nothing but surgery. Nothing but surgery will do. And he saddled his nose with huge x-ray glasses, circled down around and around me for a long time, and peered through the bones of my skull, examining the brain and writing something in his book. Curious, most curious. Listen, would you consent to being preserved in alcohol? It would be extremely useful to the one state. I mean, it would help us prevent an epidemic. Of course, unless you have some special reasons to. Well, you see, said the thin one, number D503 is the builder of the integral, and I'm sure it would interfere with. Oh, the other grunted and pattered back to his office. We remained alone. The paper-thin hand fell lightly and gently on my hand. The profile face bent close to mine, and he whispered, I'll tell you in confidence, you are not the only one. It is not for nothing that my colleague spoke of an epidemic. Try to remember, haven't you noticed anything else like it? I mean, very like it, very similar in anything else? And he peered at me closely. What was he hinting at? Whom did he mean? Could it be? Listen, I jumped up from the chair. But... He was already speaking loudly about other things. As far as your insomnia and your dreams, I can suggest one thing to do. Uh, do more walking. Start tomorrow and go out and take a walk. Well, let's say to the ancient house. He pierced me with his eyes again, smiling his thinnest smile. And it seemed to me I saw quite clearly a word, a letter, a name, the only name wrapped in the finest tissue of that smile. Or was it this only my imagination again? I could barely wait until he wrote out a certificate of illness for that day and the next, and silently I pressed his hand once more. I ran out. My heart, fast, light, fast and light as an arrow, swept me up and up. I knew some joy awaited me tomorrow. What was it? All right. Well, I'll just have a bit of a view as we're walking back so you can sort of see where I'm at road is down there the mountains in the distance this is much more open big rocky bits
see some rock formations in the distance. Tucson's out over there. So I think what I'm going to do is the last of my little bits of offerings, I'm going to add to the heart that the person has made there at the base of this little hill off the pullout because clearly there's a campfire up there and people must walk through here with some regularity. And that's, that's what I imagine. Like if we leave reminders of our humanity, our connection to the natural world and our imagination, right? Because that's the book. That's what they're trying to extinguish is imagination, right? And love and unscheduled, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what they're trying to sort of extinguish, the, the spontaneity. And so, yeah, so somebody spontaneously set this heart on the, the roadside and then I'll spontaneously add to it and maybe someone will keep adding and we'll, we'll keep that spark alive. That's the Chautauqua and that's what I keep, I mentioned that today in my blog post, Robin Wall Kimmer Chautauqua, the tinder carrying fungus. So I don't know if you can Pitch. Can you can you see it? The heart. It's up there. So I'm gonna pause for a second and lay out some things over there. So hopefully you can see the heart here. It's made up of these chunky rocks. And I guess this sort of shows the time scale, right? Bigger, big rocks to chunkier rocks to smaller rocks to gravel and so in the middle, I did a little installation of my last hearts that someone sent to me. It's hand embroidered with pearls and there's a piece of phosphorite next to it. And some beautiful fall leaves that I gathered and some marigolds and lavender. And then I did this whole little sort of collection of hearts cut out of the papery bark. This is all just tree bark. And so you can see the Nandina berries sprinkled around in the eucalyptus leaves and then one of my last little hummingbirds uh, someone sent me a I'm trying to remember I think it was certain acorns and they were wrapped in this paper and so I saved the paper to keep the hummingbirds for later and I, I think this is okay I think this will uh, decay in the rain without too much harm but yeah and I think there's some some of the wild rice is still there you can see that from my friend from Minnesota and uh yeah, so just a little enhancement to the the heart that is around us, this big heart. Hopefully adding a bit of nature and imagination and creativity to it. The flurry of hearts. You know, and as I do this, I'm sort of thinking of my my dad who's struggling with Alzheimer's and my family trying to figure out what the course is next and just asking for help in us moving through the coming months.
love. Message of love. Let it sound through the mountain passes. So further down the mountain, now we're down with the, the grasses and the succulents and um, there's some amazing pink flowers that I passed in the parking lot. I don't know what they are. Uh, and the sun is just dipping past the ridge, but I'm going to see if I can get two more chapters in before we uh, lose our daylight. It's, it's going behind a cloud, but hopefully it'll come back in a second. Uh, let's see. So we are at, okay, 17th entry. Uh, through the glass, I am dead corridors. I'm completely bewildered. Oh, oh you know what? Let me, let me start the, the other one real quick. Just in case this is my backup. <laughs> I think it's going. Okay. Uh, thanks for, for pausing. Okay, so uh, back to 17th entry of we. I am completely bewildered. Yesterday at the very moment when I thought that everything was already disentangled, that all the X's were found, new unknown quantities appeared in my equation. The starting point of all the coordinates in this entire story is, of course, the ancient house. It is the center of the axial lines of all the X's, Y's, and Z's on which my whole world has been built of late. Along the line of X's 59th Avenue, I walked toward the starting point of the coordinates. All that had happened yesterday whirled like a hurricane within me. Upside down houses and people, tormentingly alien hands, gleaming scissors, sharp drops falling in the washstand. All of this happened, had happened once, and all of it, tearing my flesh, was whirling madly within, beneath the surface, melted by a fire where the soul was. In order to carry out the doctor's prescription, I deliberately chose to walk along two lines at right angles instead of a hypotenuse. I was already on the second line, the road along the green wall. From the illimitable, illimitable green ocean behind the wall rose a wild wave of roots, flowers, branches, leaves. It reared, and in a moment it would roll and break and overwhelm me. And instead of a man, the finest and most precise of instruments, I would be turned into... But fortunately, between me and the wild green ocean was the glass of the wall. Oh, great divinely bounding wisdom of walls and barriers. They are perhaps the greatest of man's inventions. Man ceased to be a wild animal only when he built the first wall. Man ceased to be a savage only when he had built the green wall and when we had isolated our perfect mechanical world from the irrational, hideous world of trees and birds and animals. Through the glass, the blunt snout of some beast stared dully, mistily at me, yellow eyes, persistently repeating a single, incomprehensible thought. For a long time, we stared into each other's eyes, those mine wells from the surface world into another subterranean one. And a question stirred within me. What if he, this yellow-eyed creature, in his disorderly, filthy mound of leaves, in his uncomputed life, is happier than we are? I raised my hand. The yellow eyes blinked, backed away, and disappeared among the greenery. The paltry creature. What an absurdity that he could possibly be happier than we are. Happier than I, perhaps, but I am only an exception, and I am sick. But even I, the dark red walls of the ancient house were already before me, and the old woman's dear, ingrown mouth. I rushed to her. Is she here? The ingrown mouth opened slowly. Which she? Oh, which, which, I-330, of course. We came here together that day by arrow. 
Oh, oh, I see, I see. The rays of wrinkles round the lips, sly rays from the yellow eyes probing inside me deeper and deeper, and at last, oh well, she's here. She came a little while ago. She's here. I saw a shrub of silvery, bitter wormwood at the old woman's feet. The courtyard of the ancient house is part of the museum, carefully preserved in its prehistoric state. A branch of the wormwood lay along the old woman's hand, and she stroked it. A yellow strip of sunlight fell across her knees. And for an instant, I, I, the sun, and the old woman, and the wormwood, and the yellow eyes were one, bound firmly together by some invisible veins, and pulsing through the veins the same tumultuous, glorious blood. I am embarrassed to write about this now, but I have promised to be completely frank in these notes. Well, then I bent and kissed the ingrown soft mossy mouth and the old woman wiped her lips and laughed. I ran through the familiar dim echoing rooms for some reason directly to the bedroom and it was only at the door where I had already seized the handle that suddenly the thought came. What if she's not alone? I stopped and listened, but all I heard was the beating of my heart, not within, but somewhere near me. And I entered and the wide bed smooth, untouched, the mirror, another mirror in the closet door, and the key in the keyhole, the key with the antique key ring, and no one. I called quietly, I-330, are you here? And then still more quietly, with eyes closed, stare scarcely breathing as though I were already on my knees before her. Darling. Silence. Only the drops falling hurriedly into the washstand from the faucet. I cannot explain why, but at that moment it annoyed me, and I turned the faucet firmly and went out. Clearly she was not there. That must, meant she must be in some other apartment. I ran down the wide, gloomy stairway, and I tried one door, another, a third, locked. Everything was locked except our apartment, and that was empty. And yet, I turned back again without knowing why. I walked slowly with difficulty. My shoes were suddenly as heavy as cast iron, and I clearly remember thinking, it is a mistake to assume the force of gravity is constant. Hence, all my formulas. The thought broke off. A door slammed downstairs. Someone's steps pattered quickly across the tile. I, light again, lighter than light, rushed to the rail to bend over to say everything in one word, one cry, you. And I turned numb. Below, etched against the dark square window, shadow of the window frame, swinging its rosy ears, the head of S was hurrying across. Lightning fast, without reason, and I still don't know the reason I felt. He must not see me, he must not. And on tiptoe, pressing myself into the wall, I slipped upstairs toward the unlocked apartment. A moment at the door, his feet stamped dully up the stairs. He was coming here, if the only door. And I pleaded with the door, but it was wooden, and it creaked and squealed, and I stormed past green, red, the yellow Buddha, and I was before the mirror door of the wardrobe. My face pale, listening eyes, lips, and through the tumult of blood, I heard the door creaking again. It was he, he. And I seized the key. The ring swayed, a flash of memory, again an instant thought, bare, uh, unreasoning, a splinter of a thought, that time I-330. I quickly opened the closet door, and inside the darkness, I shut it tightly, a step, and in the ground rocked under my feet. Slowly, softly, I floated down somewhere. My eyes turned dark. I died. And later, when I sat down to record these strange events, I searched my memory and I looked up some books. And now, of course, I understand it, it was a state of temporary death, familiar to the ancients, but as far as I know, entirely unknown among us. I have no idea how long I was dead, perhaps no more than five or ten seconds, but after a time, I, I revived and opened my eyes. It was dark, 
and I felt myself going down and down, and I stretched my hand and I tried to grasp at something. It was scraped by a rough, rapidly moving wall, and there was blood on my finger. Clearly all this was not the product of my sick imagination. What was it then? And I heard my broken, quivering breath. I'm ashamed to confess this, but everything was so unexpected and incomprehensible. A minute, two, three, down and down, and finally a soft thud. That which has been dropping under my feet was now motionless, and in the dark I found a handle. I pushed it. A door opened. Dim light, and behind me a small square platform speeding up, and I rushed it. Too late. I was trapped there, but where there was I didn't know. A corridor. The silence weighed a thousand tons. Along the vaulted ceiling, lamps, an endless shimmering, trembling line of dots. The place was a little like the tubes of our underground, but much narrower and made not of our glass, but of some ancient material. A thought splashed through my mind, the memory of the underground shelters where our ancestors supposedly hid during the 200 years war. No matter, I must go. I must have walked some 20 minutes and then I turned right. The corridor was whiter here, the lamps brighter. A vague humming sound. Perhaps machines, perhaps voices, I could not tell. But I was near a heavy opaque door. The sound came from behind it. I knocked, and then louder. The hum ceased. Something clanked, and the door swung open, heavily, slowly. I don't know which of us was more astonished before my, me stood my blade-sharp paper-thin doctor. You? Here? <laughs> and his scissor lips snapped shut and I, as though I had never known a single human word, I stared silently without comprehending what he was saying. He must have been telling me to leave because he quickly pushed me with his flat paper stomach to the end of the brighter section of the corridor and then turned me around and gave me a shove back from the back. But sorry, I wanted, I thought that I-330, but behind me. Wait here, the doctor snapped and vanished. At last, at last she was near me. Here, and what did it matter where here was? The familiar saffron yellow silk, the bite smile, the veiled eyes. My lips, hands, knees trembled, and in my head the silliest thought. Vibration is sound. Trembling must make a sound. Then why isn't it audible? I couldn't bear it any longer. Where have you been? Why? I spoke quickly, incoherently, as in delirium, without tearing my eyes away from her. Or perhaps I thought this. There was a shadow following me. I died in the closet because you're that one. I mean, he speaks with scissors and I have a soul, incurable. An incurable soul, my poor dear, I-33 laughed, sprayed me with laughter and the delirium was over and drops of laughter rang, sparkled all around and everything, everything was beautiful. And the doctor appeared again from the corner, the marvelous, magnificent, thinnest doctor. Well, he stopped beside her. It's nothing. It's all right. I'll tell you later. A mere accident. Tell them I shall return in, oh, 15 minutes. The doctor slipped away around the corner, and she waited. The door closed with a dull thud, and then I-330 slowly, slowly pressed against me with her shoulder and arm, all of her, plunging a sharp, sweet teeth needle deeper and deeper in my heart, and we walked together, the two of us, one. I don't remember where we turned off into the darkness and in the darkness up a flight of stairs endlessly silently and I could not see but I knew she walked just as I did with closed eyes blind her head thrown back her teeth biting her lips and listened to the music to my barely audible trembling I came into one of the innumerable nooks in the yard of the ancient house a fence bare rocky ribs and yellow teeth of ruined walls and she opened her eyes and said the day after tomorrow at 16 and she left did this all really happen? 
I don't know. I will learn the day after tomorrow. There is only one real trace of the scraped skin on my right hand, on the tips of my fingers. But the second builder has assured me that he saw me touch the polishing wheel by accident with those fingers, and that is all there is to it. Well, it may be so. It may be. I don't know. I don't know anything. 18th entry. A logical jungle. Wounds and plaster. Never again. Yesterday I went to bed and instantly sank into the very depths of sleep like an overturned, overloaded ship. A heavy, dense mass of swaying green water. And then I slowly rose from the bottom and somewhere in the middle depths I opened my eyes. My own room, morning, still green, congealed. A splinter of sunlight on the mirror door of the closet. Flashing into my eyes, preventing me from punctually fulfilling the hours of sleep prescribed by the table of hours. It would be best to open the closet door, but all above me seemed to wrap, be wrapped in cobwebs. The cobwebs even spread over my eyes. I had no strength to rise. And yet I rose and opened, and suddenly behind the mirror door, struggling out of her dress and all rosy, I-330. By now I was so accustomed to the most incredible events that, as I recall, I was not even surprised, and I asked no questions. I quickly steeped, stepped into the closet, and breathlessly, blindly, greedily, united with her, and I can see it now, through the crack in the darkness, a sharp ray of sunlight, breathing like a flash of lightning on the floor, on the wall of the closet, rising higher, and now the cruel, gleaming blade fell on the bare, outstretched neck of I-330, and this was so terrifying that I could not bear it, and I cried out and opened my eyes again. My room. Morning, still green, congealed, a splinter of sunlight on the closet door, myself in bed, a dream, but my heart still hammered madly, quivered, sprayed, pain, aching fingers, knees. There was no doubt that all of this had happened, and I no longer knew what was a dream and what was reality. Irrational values were growing through everything solid, familiar, three-dimensional, and instead of firm, polished planes, I was surrounded by gnarled, shaggy things. It was still long before the bell, and I lay thinking, an extremely odd chain of logic unwound itself in my mind. Every equation, every formula um, in the surface world has its corresponding curve or body. But for irrational formulas like 4 my square root of negative 1, we know of no corresponding bodies. We have never seen them. But the horror of it is that these invisible bodies exist. I mean, they must. They inevitably must exist in mathematics. They're fantastic prickly shadows. Irrational formulas pass before us as on a screen, and neither mathematics nor death ever makes a mistake, so that if we do not see these bodies in our world, they must be, they inevitably must be, a whole vast world for them there beyond the surface. I jumped up without waiting for the bell and rapidly began to pace the room. My mathematics, until now the only firm and immutable island in my entire dislocated world, has also broken off into its moorings. It is also floating, whirling. Does it mean, then, that this preposterous soul is as real as my unif, as my boots, although I do not see them at the moment, they are behind the mirrored closet door. And if the boots are not a disease, then why is the soul a disease? I sought and could not find a way out of this wild thicket of logic. It was the same unknown and eerie jungle as the other one behind the green wall, inhabited by the extraordinary and comprehensible creatures that spoke without words. It seemed to me that I was seeing through the thick glass something infinitely huge and at the same time infinitely small, scorpion-like with a hidden yet constant scent sting, the, negative squ the square root of negative one. Perhaps there, there, this was nothing else but my soul, which, like the legendary scorpion of the ancients, voluntarily stung itself with everything that... The bell. It was day. 
All of this, without dying, without vanishing, was merely covered by the light of day, just as visible objects without dying are covered, by an, covered at night by the darkness. A vague, quivering mist filled my head. Through the mist, I saw the long glass tables, the spherical heads, chewing slowly, silently, in unison. And from afar, through the fog, I heard the ticking of the metronome, and in time to this familiar, caressing music, I mechanically counted to 50, along with everyone else, 50 prescribed chewing movements for each bite, and mechanically in time to the ticking, I descended and marked off my name in the book of departures like everyone else. But I felt I lived apart from everyone, alone, behind a soft wall that muted outside sounds, and here behind this wall, my world. But then if this world is mine alone, why does it go into these notes? Why record all these absurd dreams, closets, corridors? I am saddened to see that instead of a harmonious and strict mathematical poem in honor of the one state, I am producing some sort of fantastic adventure novel. Ah, if it were really nothing but a novel and not my present life filled with X's and the square root of negative one and falls. However, perhaps it is all for the best. You unknown readers are most probably children compared to us, for we have been brought up by the one state and hence have reached the highest summits possible for man. And like children, you will swallow without protest everything bitter. I shall give you only when it is carefully coated with the thick syrup of adventure. In the evening. Are you familiar with the feeling of speeding in an arrow up and up and up the blue spiral when, with the wind, what, and the wild wind whistles past your face? There is no earth. You forget the earth. It is as far from you as Saturn, Jupiter, Venus. This is how I live now. A storm wind rushes at my face and I have forgotten the earth. I have forgotten the sweet rosy O. And yet the earth exists. Sooner or later one must glide back to it. And I merely shut my eyes before the day for which her name, O90, is entered in my sexual table. This evening the distant earth reminded me of its existence. Obeying the doctor's instructions, I, I sincerely, most sincerely want to get well. I wandered for two hours along the glass deserts of our precise straight avenues. Everyone else was in the auditorium as prescribed by the table of hours, and only I was alone. It was essentially an unnatural sight. Imagine a human finger cut off from the hole, from the hand, a separate human finger running, stopping, bobbing up and down along the glass pavement. It was that finger, and the strangest, most unnatural thing of all was that finger had no desire whatsoever to be on the hand, to be with others. I wanted either to continue thus by myself or... But why try to conceal it any longer, to be with her? With I-330, once again, pouring out all of myself into her through the shoulder, through the intertwined hands. And I returned home when the sun was already setting. The rosy ash of evening glowed on the glass walls, on the golden spire of the accumulator tower, in the voices and the smiles of the numbers I met. How strange the dying rays of the sun fall at exactly the same angle as those flaring in the morning. Yet everything is altogether different. The rosiness is different. Now it was quiet, just faintly tinged with bitterness, and in the morning it would fall again, it would again be seething and resonant. Downstairs in the lobby, you, the controller, took a letter from under a pile of envelopes with the rosy ash and handed it to me. I repeat, she is a perfectly decent woman and I am certain that her feelings towards me are most friendly, and yet every time I see those sagging gill-like cheeks, they somehow set my teeth on edge. And holding out the letter with her gnarled hand, you sighed, but her sigh just barely ruffled the curtain that separated me from the world. My whole being was centered on the envelope that trembling in my hand, undoubtedly containing a letter from I-330. 
A second sigh, heavily underscored by two lines, made me break away from the envelope, and I looked up, between the gills through the bashful blinds of lowered eyelids, a sympathetic, enveloping, clinging smile. And then, my poor, poor friend, with a sigh underscored by three lines and a barely noticeable nod at the letter, the contents of which she was, of course, in the line of duty, familiar with. No, really, I... But why? No, no, my dear. I know you better than you know yourself. I have long been watching you, and I can see that you need someone marching hand in hand with you through life who has been a student of life for many years. I felt myself all plastered over by her cloying smile, the plaster that would cover the wounds about to be inflicted by the letter, trembling in my hands, and finally through the bashful blinds, almost whispering, I shall think about it, my dear, I shall think about it, and be assured if I may feel myself strong enough, but no, I must first think about it. Great benefactor, am I too? Does she mean to say that? And there were spots before my eyes, thousands of sinusoids, and the letter jumped in my hand, and I walked to the wall, near to the light. The sun was dying, and the dismal dark rose ash fell, thickening steadily upon me, the floor, my hands, the letter. I tore the envelope, and quickly the signature, the wound. It was not I-330. It was, oh, and still another wound, a watery blot on the lower right-hand corner of the page where the drop fell. I detest blots, whatever the reason, ink, or anything else. And I know that my the formerly I would simply have been annoyed. My eyes would have been offended at that annoying blot. Why then was this gray little spot now like a cloud, turning everything darker, more leaden? Or was this again my soul? And so it seems like the sun is going behind the mountain. So I should probably call it a night and head back, upload this and then head back to the East Coast in colder temperatures and fallen leaves. Just so you can get a, a sense of it. I can hear the crickets and the burbling of the creek beyond. And there's the sun going down behind the hill. And the grasses here, you know, it looks dry, but when you're in, in the grasses, there's beautiful texture. You can see the light of the sunset heading and then I'll, and the trail back.